Welcome to Urban Dharma, the podcast, where suffering is optional. Hi, this is Reverend Kusla coming to you from downtown Los Angeles from the International Buddhist Meditation Center in the heart of Koreatown. Well, it's a sunny and uh, not quite warm day in downtown Los Angeles. And what you're about to hear is Class 4, Part 2 of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Uh, This turned out to be a four-week class that went from September 28th to October 19th, 2006. And more than anything else, it's an overview of the Buddhist path, as well as an introduction to a Buddhist way of life. This is the last part in the series. This is Class 4, Part 2. Um, So without further introduction, um, Class 4, Part 2, Integrating Buddhist Practices into Everyday Life. Me, just a red flag. That they have some issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I suppose at least they're trying, you know. And Pema Children said, you know, you really need to start where you're at, you know. So if you're, if, if that's where you're at, if, if spirituality is being somebody, then, you know, uh, they want to be spiritual. But actually. Being spiritual means that you're less of somebody rather than more of somebody. So, um, um, yeah, but in the way I've heard it, generally speaking, is people say I'm spiritual but not religious. And they don't like the the form of religion, the hierarchy, the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. So, So that's usually, that's the context I usually hear that in. That's why when people say they're spiritual. Yeah, yeah please. During the uh, meditation, you know, we're trying to get to the present moment experiences of life. Okay. How do we, how do we know these the sensations and we interpret them? Okay. It, it's sort of like uh, asking questions. How do we know what we know? How do we sense what we're sensing? Yeah. Sort of epistemology. Well, there's a little uh, skeptical doubt initially when we start to meditate because we say to ourselves, well, how do I know if I'm meditating and, and, and what is the present moment? I don't think I've ever really thought about the present moment. And can you think about the present moment? Does the present moment have any shape or color? No. Does the present moment have any smell or touch? No. Does the present moment exist in past and future? No. So it's a pretty difficult concept uh, to deal with. So for me, uh, being the simple person that I am, and that's I'm not belittling myself, I, I, it's probably one of my best assets. I'm simple. When I came to meditation, I made it really complicated. I read these books and there's hundreds of pages and, and there's certain ways to do things. I think you talked about that last week. There's, there's, uh, sometimes meditation can be complicated. It's hard to remember what to do next. You know? And so my teacher would keep reminding me, he said, just be aware of sensation. 
And now, what does sensation feel like? Well, we can't really say what it feels like. We can only interpret it oftentimes as pain or pleasure. But any sensation we're aware of is a present moment experience. So, you know, if, you're, if your foot hurts, if your ankles are tingling because the blood has stopped, and you become aware of that, you are becoming aware of a present moment experience. If you're aware of the sensation of breath, and that's why I really like the sensation of breath, that always happens right now. It's when you evaluate it, put it into a context, write a story about it, that takes you away from the present moment and puts you into past and future again. So I felt that I was meditating when I was aware of the sensation of breath. When I was aware of being aware of the sensation of breath, then I was thinking. And that, and I often did that. I often say, wow, I can barely find my breath. Well, thinking, thinking, okay. And then there was that, those few moments of sensation without any evaluation. And I started to see how that stuff happened, like our experience happens before our mind creates the story for us, before our mind puts it together. It happens really quick, though. The mind is quick, you know, but there is that moment of just observation before the story comes. And so in my meditation practice, I sort of like trying to get there and then watch the thought happen. I mean, has, have any of us been able to see a thought be born? Where does it come from? Most of the time, I found in my own case, when I became aware of my thoughts, they were already fully formed and halfway done. And now I wake up to the fact that I'm in this whole, you know, mindscape, if you will. Um, as I slowed the mind down in my meditation practice, I was almost able to see the beginning of the thoughts which was sort of cool. And then if you watch the thoughts really carefully, in the same way you watch your breath really carefully, sometimes you can see them die. And they just lose all their power over us and intensity, like the woman screaming. If you had watched that thought long enough, she would have stopped screaming, and you would have seen that little thought process of yours just sort of fall into nothingness. Until the next thought came up saying, finally she stopped. Another thought, you know, and then that dies too. Now, what's unique is in between all those thoughts, there's like this little space of no thought. And it's quick. Those thoughts happen very quickly, just like a, 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 a reel of film, you know. And each one of those little pictures, given some movement, turn out to be alive. Well, our thoughts turn out to be alive, too, until we slow the process down. And now and then, you can get in between the thoughts and just settle there for a while. Just rest in between the thoughts. So the last thought is dead. The next thought hasn't been given birth to. And there you are. And there's no thought. And then you go, wow, there's no thought. Of course, thinking, thinking. <laughs> and then it starts again. It goes in. But those moments are there, and, and that really gives us an idea of, again, how, we, how the mind works, but it also gives us an idea of the present moment experience of our life. And the present moment is sort of like, um, well, this is how I look at the present moment. And, and, and again, this is just my interpretation of the present moment. 
I was thinking about time, and I'm thinking, well, is time real? And then it came to me that time was not real, that we make time up. Okay, and if you sit for 20 minutes and it's a good meditation, it seems like one minute. If it's terrible, it seems like 50 minutes. And so time is very subjective. But what do we use time for? Well, time is a measurement. And what does time measure? Time measures the ever-changing flux within the unchanging present moment. Now, let me say that one more time slowly. Time measures the ever-changing flux and flow within the unchanging present moment. Every one of our sense doors is focused on change. If it's not changing, we can't become aware of it. So sound, I found out, has a lot of silence too. And because of sound and silence, sound and silence, sound and silence, it creates sort of a vibratory thing that stimulates our eardrum and makes it go back and forth. If it was all sound, they say, we couldn't hear it. If it was all silence, we couldn't hear it. So we need both. And I suppose sight works the same way. There's sight and no sight, sight and no sight. And there's this sort of vibratory thing happens. It stimulates our optical nerve, and we can see things. So every one of our sense doors can only pick up the flux and change within the unchanging present moment. None of us have ever come in contact with this unchanging present moment through our sense doors, it seems to me. So then I wanted to get a bit philosophical, and I said to myself, well, what part of us, if there was a part, could become aware of the unchanging qualities of the present moment that held all the qualities that always change? And then it came to me, it is our heart. And in Buddhism, they oftentimes refer to it as heart-mind. It's a very specific kind of heart, or a very specific kind of mind. And it seems to be interpreted as our intuition, our sixth sense, our knowing, and I make a distinction between knowing and understanding. I consider knowing in this model to be the direct experience of something and understanding to be more of an intellectual process, a conceptualization. So the knowing is a bit more intuitive and experiential, and the understanding is a bit more intellectual and mind-oriented. If our intuition becomes exercised, and it seems to me meditation does exercise our intuition, I know mine has increased dramatically since I started meditating. There's nothing in our culture that really encourages us to exercise that part of us, our heart-mind. You are in school. You're learning all these facts and figures. We have the Internet. We have podcasts. We are amassing an immense amount of knowledge. Our intellect is so powerful, it it's gives our intuition no room at all to work. It's been lost to a lot of us. And here we come now and pick up this, this ancient practice of meditation where we look at our intellect not as our master, but simply a tool 
in which to understand the world around us. And where does the intuition fit in? That's the knowing. That's the sort of, for me, it's been the sort of the primordial part of me that had atrophied because of lack of use. And my meditation practice allowed me to become aware of synchronicity. Now, I had never heard of that term before. Uh, and I guess Carl Jung sort of figured it out. And, and he had uh, a mistress or something who was uh, into oriental philosophy and uh, so he was exploring archetypes and meditation interesting fellow he was but synchronicity I'm thinking well what the heck is synchronicity how does that work well it works when you go to Westwood Village and find a parking place that's synchronicity (laughs) 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 Or, or you open the door and somebody's getting ready to knock you know that's synchronicity. And, 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 and you didn't know or understand that was going to be the case, but all of a sudden you're in the right place at the right time. And it's, for me, has been becoming aware of the flow, the natural flow of our life. And so this flow occurs, it seems to me, within the unchanging present moment. So now, nirvana, the end product of all this uh, practice, the practice of precepts, discipline, the, pras- the practice of meditation, mental purification. The end result of all of this is to reconnect with that unchanging present moment in nirvana. In nirvana. And because nirvana is unborn, it's undying. Because nirvana has no color or form or taste or touch or smell, It's not subject to the birth and death we find in this ever-changing world, which the Buddha called samsara. So for me, coming to the present moment experience of the sensation of my breath was opening the door to a real interesting idea. The fact that there was perhaps something that didn't change. And that was available to us through practice. Some place that we could find refuge in. And that turned out to be nirvana. Um, But to be honest with you, when I started meditating, I was so far away from even thinking about things like that, that they made absolutely no sense. And it was just sort of over time and with much practice that my reality started to evolve enough to integrate some of these new ideas into my worldview and look at the world in a much different way. Um, and, and if you look at the world in that way, it turns out to be part of your practice and your life becomes your practice. You know? So we were talking earlier and, and I have no life and I have no future. And at first it's a little disconcerting, you know? Because it's sort of fun to have a life, and it's probably important to most of us to have a future. But as your understanding deepens, you start to realize that the present moment is your life and your future. But there isn't anything about that 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 deals with time. There's no past or future when it comes to that. I, I, I don't understand the term, the unchanging present moment, because the present 
what was present a, a nanosecond ago is not the present now. Right. So it means at the consistently present moment? Nope. No, no, this is how I look at it. I, I haven't read this, and so I'm just going to share a personal uh, insight that I had about this because I couldn't figure that out either. I could not figure out what a present moment was. Were there a bunch of present moments that sort of followed each other? You know? So this is the present moment, and now we go outside, and this is the present moment. And, but it's a different present moment, it seems, if you're outside rather than inside, even though it's the same unchanging present moment. So what the heck is a present moment? I couldn't figure it out. It drove me nuts. I read, I meditated, I asked questions. People tried to tell me. I couldn't hear their answers. And so uh, this is how I look at it now. This is, this is how I made sense of that paradox. And... Uh, there is an unchanging present moment that never changes. It was never born, and it's never going to die. And in that unchanging present moment, everything still exists. And if you look at it that way, the Buddha is right now here with us. He's still in that same present moment. We're in the same present moment he was enlightened in. It's the same one. We're here right now. His enlightenment and us are in the same place, the present moment. Okay, so I used to like science fiction, still do. Sort of working with that, okay. But what accounts for all the stuff that seems to be in flow, and flux? How does that fit into the present moment? So, I looked at it this way. Imagine a big circle, a big bubble. And, and that bubble never changes. It's always the same bubble. But within the big bubble is this ever-changing flow and flux. Okay, and so we're in the bubble, and all our sense doors are connected to all that change and flux. We've never known anything outside the inside of the bubble. We've always been in the bubble. Everybody we've known has been in the bubble. Nobody's ever ventured out to the side of the bubble that doesn't change, except those few folks known as arahants and buddhas who have had a direct experience of that unchanging quality. They've called it nirvana. So we think, in, in a very real way, that there, you know, there couldn't possibly be something that's unchanging, unborn. Because none of us have ever experienced it. We know of no one who's experienced it. We now have stories, thanks to the Buddha and others, who have ventured to the bubble, to the edge of the bubble, where it doesn't change. And they've come back and they've said, that is ultimate peace. If it doesn't change, it'll never change for the better, It'll never change for the worse. So the refuge has become that quality of the unchanging present moment. The refuge has become nirvana for us. So when I look at time, for me, time measures what's inside the bubble. Time measures the ever-changing conditions within the unchanging present moment. So that's how I did it. 
And for me, it allowed me to even imagine what it might be like. So, everything happens right now all the time. It's just because there is change involved that we think there's a past and a future. But to, the idea that the Buddha was enlightened in this very present moment that we now exist in, and that Christ was put on the cross in this very present moment that we now exist in, is just amazing to me. You know? Yeah. Did that help? I'm not sure. Okay. We have to reflect on that for a while. First, I thought you were going to talk about parallel universe, but you didn't go there. No, no. That's I've I've tried to read some of that stuff in string theory and things. Yeah. It's a lot of fun, yeah. but it leaves me sort of like, what are they talking about? Yeah. yeah. So this is where I came up with the bubble. You know, the the, the bubble that doesn't change. There was a book a few years ago called Flatland. You ever read about the Flatlanders? Mm-hmm. Very interesting. And and so there was there was there was no depth. Everything was just you know just had two dimensions, if I'm not mistaken. And the people that were the most advanced had the most sides. You know, so the circle was you know king. And uh, <laughs> then you had the triangle way down on the list. You know. <laughs> But it was interesting, and when you think about it too, it's like you know maybe the turtle and the fish. Now I, I have a koi pond in the back of the center that I sometimes just sit and and look at. In those moments, I don't have much to do, and and I realize how lucky the turtle is, because the turtle is the king of the koi pond. He gets to leave, you know, and he can oversee his kingdom. And those fish never know the reality of living outside the pond. But the turtle does. And in a way, the Buddha was able to leave the pond, and we're the koi fish, and we're trying to imagine what it must be like to be out there, out of this ever-changing stuff. What, what, what it must be like to, to not have change as part of our life. And I, I, and I can't imagine it, because I've had no experience. can't even think about it, because I don't even have any thoughts about that. So it was difficult for me, but I, I can appreciate the different metaphors, you know, and, and analogies and as being a useful way to come to this sort of intuitive experience of our life that has been lost to most of us because we have such great intellects, you know? Con- you know, considering the people were illiterate at one time, couldn't even read or write, couldn't even count their breaths, probably had to use their fingers. You know, and 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 yet somehow, I would imagine and be you know they intuited a lot of stuff. Tell how people felt about them. You know, could feel if the crops were going to be good this year. You know, and I get maybe farmers can still do that. Maybe farmers have that feeling of it's going to be a good year. You put me in front of a cornfield, I haven't got a clue if it's going to be a good year. I'm just amazed that stuff grows out of the ground, you know. Isn't it supposed to be in the grocery store? Isn't that where you get the stuff from? So so we've lost that. Yes, please. Have you had any experience of, um, because you've worked at City of Hope or hospitals or whatever, of the process of meditation healing people, their bodies, or um, assisting with their health care? No, not a bit. 
And I say that in the way I said it because I wanted to make a point that what meditation from a Buddhist perspective would do would be to bring us to a place of acceptance with the way we are. Now, I believe that some forms of meditation may have healing qualities, uh, but Buddhism doesn't emphasize that. Uh, the idea a Buddhist would meditate in the hospital would be for two reasons. One, uh, how do I come to a place of acceptance with getting well? Now, that may sound weird, but sometimes getting well is very difficult. You might have radiation or chemotherapy. You might need to take you know, pills for three years you know, and that kind of stuff. And, and all that stuff requires discipline, you know, perseverance. And meditation would allow us to come to a place of acceptance with that regime because at the end of that regime, we'd have our health back. And if we were going to die, meditation would allow us to die well. So even though from a Buddhist perspective it may not help heal you, I think it still it gives us a lot of benefit coming to acceptance. I was talking earlier about, uh, I went yesterday to UCLA to visit a, a fellow police chaplain. And uh, he's, um, he got cancer of the tongue probably six months ago. He's Mormon, too. Never drank or smoked a day in his life. And so they put him into this sort of radiation therapy where they put stuff on his face and his chest. They lined up the machine and they would zap him. And then they gave him, gave him chemotherapy for a while. Then they put, implanted these little radiation seeds into his tongue to kill all the bad cells and stuff. It didn't work. So Monday of this week, he went to UCLA and had half his tongue cut out. Uh, and they cut out part of his wrist, some of the tendons in there, and they're going to put those and create another tongue for him. It's amazing what they can do. But I saw him yesterday, and, geez, you know, he was uh, uh, in the ICU, which is in the basement of the medical center. And you have to call on a red phone, and then somebody comes out the door and takes you in. You just can't go in there. And everybody has been through hell and back in this place, in this particular section of the hospital. And there's like machines and doctors and nurses and technicians and laptop computers at the foot of each bed and monitors at the head of each bed and things. And, and there's like probably 50 people in here. And they've all, they're all just recovering from their operations and stuff. And they're all in... You know, most of them are half asleep or drugged out. And just look at that. You go, geez. You know, for me, I, I was sad because I realized what the Buddha said was absolutely true. That sickness and old age and death are inherent in the human life. I mean, it's, that's, that's our inheritance. And to see the suffering that went on. So if you were able to meditate... If you had been practicing meditation, once you get to the hospital, if you've never meditated, it's too late. You, you, need, you need a couple years before you go to the hospital to have a practice down, you know. It's like finding God, you know, the day before you die. Well, is, it, is that enough time? Maybe so. <laughs> Maybe so. But if I was a Christian, i want to find God long before I went to the hospital. So now you're meditating. 
and you're say you're using mindfulness, okay, you're not you're not you're not critiquing anything. You're just using raw awareness, and you're surveying the room that you are in, and you are looking at your body, sensing your body, feeling those sensations occurring right now in the present moment. Most of them probably pretty unpleasant. But perhaps the meditator, rather than looking at it as pain, would be looking at it as just a really, really, really strong sensation and coming to acceptance and, and actually rethinking the teachings of the Buddha that he or she had heard many, many times before. All things are impermanent. And, and if you're happy today, sorrow and suffering is not too far off in the future. But if you're suffering and sad today, happiness is not too far off in the future either. And this place of acceptance will allow us not to have to suffer, not to want it to be different than it is, but will simply be pain or sensation and a teaching that, a direct experience of a teaching. When I visit the chaplains at UCLA, you look in their eyes, and they've seen it all. They've seen six-month-old babies die. They've seen old men and women die. They've seen people in the prime of their life die. They've also seen them get well. And they had to go in, and they had to, they had to create a relationship with them and be with them in all their times of trial. And I'm just amazing what that does to you. And that's the kind of awareness I think this meditation practice allows us to have as well. That each and every event in our life can be a learning experience, can add to our wisdom, can add to our compassion. So when I walked in there yesterday, you know, it's not like I'll never be there. I can't be proud and real happy that I'm healthy because that's in my future too, perhaps, because I have a body and I have a mind. So we're like brothers and sisters, you know. It's not I'm coming in with this sort of like I'm the chaplain. I'm coming in and, yeah, it's really difficult to be a human being, isn't it? And everybody's going, yeah, it sucks. <laughs> yeah. Most of them, of course, will get better, and most of them will be out, and, and their life will get back to normal again. Uh, this is sort of like a big time out. You know, six months ago, Steve was busy, busy, busy. And pretty much for the last few months, he's been trying to get well again. And, and it hasn't worked. And now he's going to have a, a fairly long time of recuperation, I've got a feeling. Uh, so his whole focus has changed. And so it seems to me, if we have anything we want to do, we should get going on it. Because we don't know if one day that's going to be our lot, going to the doctor's office with a sore tongue. He went in with a sore tongue. He said it felt like he bit his tongue. That was the only indication that something was wrong. Wow. And his wife, she's there by his side. And caregivers oftentimes have a more difficult time than the patient because they don't get to sleep. You know, the patient can be asleep and the caregiver is sitting next to the bed, reading the book, making sure everything's okay. Never get a break. No time out for the caregiver. 
you know. So she was, it's amazing to see that team and to see that kind of love and kindness that's being shared in a time like this. It's very good. So I, um, I'm, I'm lucky to be able to do that, but it can be very difficult because it's such a strong, powerful teaching of how it is, you know. And so my meditation practice, my all my sort of philosophical perspectives that I've acquired over the years that I use to give meaning to what I experience uh, has, has allowed me to more often than not be kind to the person on the phone unless they're doing interviews and then, so a quick overview so we have this guy the Buddha he realized that there was suffering in the world as a Buddhist when we I was going to move a little forward so I can have more eye contact so as a Buddhist when we come to Buddhism we come to Buddhism because there's something wrong not because there's something right and perhaps a lot of religions are like that as well but in Buddhism in particular we sense there's an underlying dissatisfaction with everything in our life may be subtle may not be obvious at all so uh, my job as a Buddhist monk is to sell the first noble truth and it can be difficult my job is to show each and every one of you that your life sucks and there's going to be resistance and denial and um, and you may not ever see it I, I have to smile because when I came to Buddhism my life was pretty good and after the first couple of years I was suffering more than I'd ever suffered before <laughs> I was starting to see clearly the delusions I carried with me, the illusions of uh, success and failure, the the idea of good and bad. You know, I started to see through that. So the first sell, the hard sell is, okay, life isn't what you think it is. Life is ultimately going to be unsatisfactory. That's the, That's a tough one. Now, the second cell, or the second thing we talk about is, why? Why does life have to be that way? And life is that way because we are deluded and ignorant. We think we can attach to the good and push away the bad. We think we can do it. We think we have enough skills and enough life history to just put the right combination together. If we can just take the certain conditions and put them together, we can have the perfect life. But none of us have ever been able to do that. So that's the second aspect of this. The third aspect is the most popular. It's the answer. The answer, according to Buddhism, is nirvana. And then the fourth, the fourth truth is how to get to nirvana. So we didn't stop by just telling people that their life was unsatisfactory. We continued to talk about why it was unsatisfactory, how it could be wonderful, and what it was like to be ultimately happy and peaceful. The end goal of Buddhism. 
And so what is this what is this path? It's the noble eightfold path. Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And in the first class we talked about the precepts, morality, ethics mostly. We also find that in the first part of the Eightfold Path, which is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Those three aspects deal primarily with what we say and what we do. What we say and what we do are two of the three parts of karma. Karma is everything we say, everything we do, and everything we think. The second category, mental purification, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, deals with our thinking, that third part of karma. In a very real way, a Buddhist is trying to change the karma, plain and simple. We're trying to change the direction of our karma. And we're fighting many past lifetimes. We're we're fighting habit patterns. We're fighting lust, greed, hatred, and delusion. All those things go into the choices we make. And the consequences may be pleasant, but they may be unpleasant as well. We're trying to change the way we speak. We're trying to change the way we act. And we're trying to change the way we think. And so the five precepts are all about what we say and what we do. To avoid taking life. To avoid taking what is not given. To avoid sexual misconduct. To avoid lying. To avoid consuming intoxicants. That's the foundation of the Buddhist path right there. And every Buddhist in the world who became an official Buddhist and took refuge in the five precepts is now practicing those five precepts. Some with more success than others. But those are, uh, for me, it's always been a passport to any community. If you are practicing those five precepts, any community in the world will encourage you to join them because you won't be creating more suffering, you'll be creating less suffering. The hardest aspect of this, of course, is is to change what we think. Uh, What we say and what we do has, in some cases, immediate results. We can see the impact of what we say and what we do. But thinking, thought, is so subtle. Sometimes we're not even aware we're thinking thoughts we're thinking, you know? And the right effort is to allow us to take time to analyze the thoughts and put them into two categories, skillful and unskillful. So right effort is about abandoning unskillful thoughts, preventing unskillful thoughts from arising, developing skillful thoughts that have not yet arisen and maintaining skillful thoughts that are already there. So this right effort really has a lot to do with simply becoming aware of what we're thinking about and putting them into two very general categories, skillful and unskillful. Right concentration, right meditation. Those are the two kinds of meditation that Buddhists do. 
the Buddha was taught how to do concentration meditation by the yogis of India. And then he rediscovered insight meditation, which allowed him to achieve his final goal of nirvana. In concentration meditation, there is something called the jhanas, deep states of tranquility. The first jhana has five characteristics, applied thought, sustained thought, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The second jhana has three characteristics, happiness, bliss, and equanimity. The third jhana has two characteristics, happiness and equanimity. And the fourth jhana has one characteristic, equanimity. Buddhism is a path of renunciation. So if you're doing Buddhist meditation correctly, you're not gaining a thing. You're simply getting rid of the things that prevent you from realizing your own perfection. Everything's already there. It's already in place. Applied thought and sustained thought is bringing your attention to the object of meditation and holding it there. When we become one-pointed, when we become focused, we find a feeling of pleasure in the body, a sense of happiness in the mind, and the beginning of balance, equanimity. As we go deeper into our meditation, concentration meditation, we no longer need to bring the mind to the object of meditation. It simply goes there by itself and rests there with no willpower on our part, no force. At that point, you have a stronger sense of pleasure, a stronger sense of happiness, and a stronger sense of balance. As you go into the next level of meditation and deeper concentration, you let go of the bliss and pleasure of the body. Now you have a very strong sense of happiness and a very strong sense of balance. When you achieve the final level of concentration, the fourth jhana, there's only one characteristic left, and that is mindfulness, balance, that is equanimity. Spiritual indifference, I call it. It's indifference with a heart. Everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be. You have no need or desire to change anything. At that level, you have perfect balance of mind. It's temporary, though. It only works while you're sitting there meditating in a quiet room with no helicopters. The Buddha found that to be a problem because he wanted to take that with him everywhere he went. So he rediscovered insight meditation, four kinds of mindfulness. <coughs> mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of sensations, mindfulness of the mind, mindfulness of mental objects. When you <coughs> practice mindfulness meditation, it's simply raw awareness, simply being mindful of the present moment experience of your life. More specifically, it could be being aware of the sensations in your body, the sensations in your mind. You could be aware of your various postures if you're doing mindfulness of the body. So you'd be aware of lying down, you'd be aware of sitting, you'd be aware of standing, and that would allow you to become aware of what your body was doing. 
If you're doing walking meditation, you are simply putting one foot very slowly in front of the next one. One foot very slowly in front of the next one. Okay. And that allows you to come in contact with your body. When I did walking meditation, I was surprised that I could literally feel the bottom of my foot touching the carpet. I could feel the pressure. I could feel the weight of my body shifting from one foot to the next. Slowing down the process of walking allows us to gain insight to what it means to have a body. The liberating qualities of that are a direct experience of the three Buddhist wisdoms. They are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self. All things are impermanent. You become aware of that in a very personal and direct way through mindfulness meditation. All things are ultimately unsatisfactory. You become aware of that in a very personal and direct way in mindfulness meditation. All things are devoid of self, essence, quality. You become aware of that in a very personal way. And that is probably the most difficult. That's coming to the conclusion that you no longer exist in the way you always thought you did. That you are not independent of conditions. You are a conditional person. And you require at least food, water, shelter, clothing, and air to exist. And a few hundred or a few thousand other things to exist in a nice way that you don't stand apart from anyone else. You are all connected, all interdependent. And being in the basement of medical center, looking at these post-op person, uh, persons, and, and having that feeling that you're connected to each and every one of them in a very personal way. It, maybe that was the reason for some of my sadness, too, that I was in the bed. I was feeling some of the pain and suffering. You know, the confusion. When that becomes your direct experience, it's a liberating experience. It allows you now to look at the world and feel connected again. We disconnected long, long ago at a very young age. Uh, First, we, um, uh, as I've been reading, we disconnect from mom. There's somebody else in the room with us. It's not just the universe feeding us, now it's mom feeding us. And then maybe dad shows up. Where did dad come from? You know? And then our hand shows up. We notice we have something attached to us. And if mom has nothing else to do, mom might say, hand, hand, hand. And now that sound seems to be connected to this form, and we repeat that sound, and mom is happy. And so not only do we see the hand, we can conceptualize the hand and speak of the hand. And that's the beginning of our separation. And as our vocabulary grows, we become more and more separated from everything around us. We are taking pieces out of the fabric of the universe and placing them over there. 
and all the while we are disconnected. And I think to a large extent that accounts for that sort of underlying, not quite surface feeling of dissatisfaction, that we've lost our connection to the world, that it's lonely not being connected to the world. And so Buddhism is saying the ultimate reality is literally coming back to the world in a connected way. But not because you don't think, not in a primordial way. We can't go back and look at the world as a child because we would die. So Buddhism says you need to transcend the separateness and experience the ultimate reality. When you do that, though, you can't live there. One of the sad facts, because you need to be separate in order to live in this very complicated world of ours. And if I'm riding my motorcycle at 70 miles an hour on the freeway, I need to be separate from the car next to me. But I know I'm connected to the car. I just not one with the car. So it changes the way we perceive ourselves and our relationship to everyone and everything in the world. They are us and we are them. And we know that, but they may not. So we can't be too friendly to all our lost brothers and sisters when we find them because they might think we're a bit odd. How are you? I haven't seen you in a long time. And they've never seen you before. You know? Are you having a good day today? Because if you are, that means I am too. Cool. You know? So as Ramdas says, we need to learn to dance. We need to have one foot in the ultimate and one foot in the relative. We need to be able to dance and feel comfortable going into each of those realities. And meditation, when practiced long and hard, will allow us to visit the ultimate reality of our life, the interconnectedness of our life, those few unchanging qualities that our heart becomes aware of and our mind still rejects because it doesn't make intellectual sense. But our heart knows it's true. And out of that heartfelt connection arises the great compassion that's always talked about in Buddhism. And out of that direct experience of interconnectedness arises wisdom as well. So in Buddhism, we need to have two things. We need to have wisdom and we need to have compassion. And the direct experience of ultimate reality in Buddhism allows us to have both. We see, we know, we may understand later, but our heart knows immediately. And I'm amazed, since I've been practicing meditation, how often I cry now. And, it's, and sometimes for no good reasons at all. I was uh, giving a talk at a church Gandhi Day, and reading the story. And at one point, I almost cried because the story was so cute and just so heartwarming. And I got involved in telling the story. And my eyes started to fill with tears. And I thought to myself, what do these people think about me? This grown man reading a children's story and almost crying in front of them, you know? But it was one of those experiences that makes you feel so alive. 
that that sometimes the emotions will creep up on you and surprise you and surprise those around you and you have to have courage when you cry in front of a large group of people you just need to cry and then go on to the next thing that's what the Dalai Lama does if you've ever had a chance to see him speak in person he'll tell stories and he'll literally cry I saw him cry when he was talking about the the plight of the Tibetan nuns not being supported in the same way the Tibetan monks are supported and not five minutes after that he was just chuckling and laughing he was telling another story he was so in the present moment he wasn't getting he wasn't getting caught in one or the other he was just flowing through it all but through it all his heart was open it wasn't closed and this path will open your heart too if you let it if you practice and then you'll cry and laugh and you'll be extraordinarily ordinary you will come back to that humanity that is your birthright your gift yeah it's a very cool thing well that's it that was class four part two and this ends the eight-part series of an extension class I taught at Loyola Marymount University titled integrating Buddhist practices into everyday life I hope you found it interesting I hope you found it useful if you'd like to know more about me please visit my website kusala.info that's kusala.info if you'd like to listen to more Dharma talks or interviews I've done please visit dharmatalks.info that's dharmatalks.info if you'd like to download some free ebooks on Buddhism and a free 2007 Buddhist calendar in PDF please visit buddhabooks.info that's buddhabooks.info if you'd like to email me my email address is kusla at urbandharma.org well that does it that's the end of this series and until the next podcast until the next time be happy be peaceful and most of all be free from suffering.